So tonight we are continuing through Ecclesiastes. We are in Ecclesiastes 7, and we're going to finish out chapter 7. We'll begin with verse 15, and we will work our way down to 29. There are two main subjects tonight, two main subjects in this passage of Scripture. And the two subjects are um, righteousness and wisdom. As we go through the verses, he is going to do as he often does. He will hit one, and then he will kind of switch back and hit the other, and then switch back and hit the other, and switch back and hit the other. But these are the two subjects, righteousness and wisdom. This is what we're going to ponder, and this is what he has been pondering for quite a while. And he's been thinking deeply, and he's been thinking carefully, and he's been experimenting, and he has been chewing on these things and mulling them over in his mind and uh, practicing these things in uh, different ways in his life. So righteousness and wisdom. Right off the bat, in verse 15, he tells us that there are two dilemmas. Let's read this passage in Ecclesiastes 7:15. He says, "I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility." He's not just been living life, he's been observing life, he's been taking notes. Uh, he has been Solomon was given a gift in 1 Kings 3. He was given a gift of wisdom. And if you carefully note the gift of wisdom that he was given. In fact, let's turn to 1 Kings 3. As, as you note the gift of wisdom that he was given, it wasn't a gift of wisdom pertaining broadly to everything, but it was a gift of wisdom. Well, let's read it and you'll see. In... 1 Kings 3, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Solomon said, you've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, Lord, my God, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. Now watch this. So give your servant an understanding heart, or a wise heart, to judge your people. Watch this, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Um, He asked for a type of, if you will, judicial wisdom and discernment as he led the people. And specifically, that's what God gave to him. Verse 11, God said to him, because you've asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, not asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, 
Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So he was given wisdom, but it was a specific kind of wisdom, which might explain why, as you look at the life of Solomon, that, to use the metaphor of a race, he started strong, and then sort of, not too long after a strong start, there were some cracks internally. And then in midlife, he actually got away from the Lord. Um began to look at life not from God's perspective, but began to look at life under the sun, which we have said, which we've defined in here. Life under the sun, that, that phrase, is, is what today we call secularism. Uh, it's the earthly perspective. Secularism, or life under the sun, believes that this is the only world that, he is, that there is. So he began, he began for a number of years to live his life from the perspective that Really, this is all there is. Uh, he switched gears. Later, he returned to the Lord, uh, wrote Ecclesiastes later in life. But he explored this stuff. He went after it. Th- this guy was obsessive compulsive. When, 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 when he decided to gather all different kinds of trees, he gathered every kind of tree that he could possibly get his hands on. He sent ships out all over. He was the only king of, of, uh, of Israel that ever sent out ships. And then they would bring back all these animals and the trees and the plants and all this. I mean, he just went after it. He wanted to experience all of life. And what he came up with, I have seen everything during my lifetime, watch this, of futility. Uh, that all this stuff is futile. That all this stuff is empty. That all this stuff is meaningless. Last week I uh, showed you the biography, uh, autobiography of Malcolm Muggeridge, um, which he titled A Wasted Life. Yet he was a very successful man, very famous. Uh, Walked in the halls of power, was known all over the world. Uh, A brilliant man, brilliant orator, uh, correspondent, later uh, a a satirist, uh, had a program on the BBC, a commentator. You can YouTube Malcolm Muggeridge and see how articulate he was. But up until he knew Christ, he looked back and he called it futility. Man, now here's the chronicle of a wasted life. That's me. Now watch this. Here is the dilemma that's in verse 15. As he's looking at life, here's the first dilemma he sees. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. All right, so what's he talking about here? He's talking, this this is a major league problem because those who are righteous, those who are following the Lord, and why is anyone righteous? Well, we're righteous because of the grace and mercy of God. As we're going to see in here, uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But the free gift of eternal life, 6.23 of Romans, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um. Hebrews 11, faith comes by hearing. That's Hebrews, uh, no, that's uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's Romans 10. I'm trying to pull something out of Hebrews 11. 
which is, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is, and that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, how do you please God? By trusting in him, by depending on him. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But the righteous are the ones who are not living under the sun. They're living their lives in dependence upon the one who made the sun and made the world and is the redeemer of the world. Okay? So, he says, here's my dilemma. I've seen a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and I have seen a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Uh, there's an entire psalm devoted to this. Psalm 73. We might flip over there. Because in Psalm 73... This is such a disturbing question. As you look at life, and Psalm 73 amplifies on it quite a bit more. Because see, in essence, what's being covered in, in, in that first verse, in verse 15, is why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? I don't get that. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? You ever thought about that? You ever just look around? You ever just read the news? You ever just read the paper? You ever just go, what's the deal here? Sure you do. Psalm 73, we won't do the whole thing, but Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. This is a big deal. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. In their culture, fat was good. Fat didn't mean body fat. Fat meant you got enough to eat, and you're, you know, you're cruising through life. They, they, yeah, just know that. Their, their body is well off. They got everything they want and more. You know, lives of the rich and famous. Watch this. They are not in trouble as other men. Now, maybe because how they live and because of what they do, they ought to be in trouble, but somehow they skate. How do they do that? Those who have done a lot less have gotten hit with wretched penalties and paid a huge price, but they just skate through life. They're Teflon. Nothing can touch them. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. There's violence in their life, but it's covered. But don't make any mistake about it. There's plenty of violence. And you get in their way, and you'll find out about it. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth. And he goes on. Uh, it just... Look at uh, 11. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They have increased in wealth. 
Now watch this. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Watch this. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And if you really think about it, it's troublesome in your sight and in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. You see, there is an end. There is a reckoning. There is a day of judgment. Oh, yeah. And when we forget that, we struggle deeply. But when we remember it, we thank God for his grace and mercy. You see. Uh, that's the dilemma that's back in verse 15. The righteous suffer. We're living in interesting times, I think. Um, in our country, up until now, for 200 years, we've had something called religious uh, liberty. And you could, um, you could know the Lord, and you could actually prosper. And, I mean, you know, that was fine. This was a country unlike the vast, vast, vast majority of countries. In most countries, Christians are persecuted. In most countries, um, it costs something to be a Christian. Not in this country. Not until now. And now there's been a massive shift. And there's been a complete turnaround. And so what has happened is now we're not just looking at this theoretically as we read this, we're thinking about our own lives and we're thinking about our own kids and we're thinking about our own grandkids. Because we're seeing the tide turn and um, we're, I, I, I think a case could be made, we're a little bit panicked because we've never been here before. Um, so a friend of mine emailed me last week, and solid guy in the Lord. Solid walk with the Lord. But uh, he said, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just really deeply concerned with what's happening in this nation. In fact, I'm so concerned I couldn't sleep last night. And uh, got Super Tuesday coming up. A lot riding on this. And then the senator I've always respected came out and gave an endorsement, the senator from my home state, to someone I never thought he'd endorse. And I, I'm just kind of reeling from this. He said, what do you think? And I basically just emailed him back and said, yeah, that was a little stunning, that endorsement. I didn't see that coming. But uh, I, I, uh, my response was, uh, but uh, as the Old Testament says, uh, it was a turn of events from the Lord. It's all under the sovereignty. And then, and I'm just throwing this out. You know, I'd only had a cup of coffee. I needed three more, but I'm kind of, I'm responding. <clears throat> 
And then I said, you know, I'm just grateful that Super Tuesday is really Sovereign Tuesday. And I am. And now that was yesterday. I think that's how you sleep. I, I came across an article. Uh, Dr. Gene Veith is uh, provost at Patrick Henry College, a Christian college in Virginia. He's also involved with Concordia Seminary. Uh, solid uh, church historian, knows a lot of literature. The guy's just, he's a scholar from a Christian standpoint. Uh, and on his website, he had an article. And he, now, listen, I'm walking a fine line here because you're going to think, as soon as I tell you the name of this article, that I'm getting political. But don't jump to that conclusion because what I'm going to do here is I'm, I'm going to get biblical real quick. But I think he puts his finger on something. We talked to him before about First Chronicles 12.32, that the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Uh, so that means the men of Issachar in their time, they had discernment. They could discern the times. They understood the times because they looked at the times through the lens of the Word of God. That's discernment. You see what other people don't see. Um, and they knew what Israel should do. So the men of Issachar understood the times. They had discernment. And they knew what Israel should do. That's vision. So they had discernment and vision. That's what we need, I think. Okay. So Dr. Jean Veith, his article is called, Why So Many Evangelicals Are for Trump. You say, you're getting political. Hold on. Here's what he says. And this guy's an evangelical. Why are so many evangelicals supporting such a flagrant non-evangelical as Donald Trump? Ben Domenech, or Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, gives the best answer I've heard. The evangelicals who support Trump recognize that they have lost the culture wars, that Christianizing the government is futile, and that America is no longer a Christian nation. What they want now is protection from the politically correct elites who would love to stamp out whatever Christianity is left. And Trump, for all his faults, delights in defying the politically correct elite. Quote Gene, Gene Veith here. And then he quotes the article from Ben Domenech or Domenech, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And I'll read you one paragraph of his take. He says, in this post-apocalyptic environment, it becomes increasingly clear why Southern evangelicals would drop their requirements that a political leader who seeks their backing be one of them, ideologically or faithfully. They have different priorities now. They want an ally who will protect them, regardless of his personal ethics. I thought that was interesting. And when I read that, I immediately thought of Isaiah 30. Here's where we get biblical. Let's apply Isaiah 30 to this. You say, why are we doing this? Why are, you, why are you going down this road? Well, because there is a dilemma that is given in Ecclesiastes 7.15. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do they die, perhaps, uh, in, in their righteousness? And why do the wicked prosper? Okay? These are the times in which we're in. So, why would I refer you to Isaiah 30? Um, let's go to Isaiah 30. 
In, in Isaiah 30, you got a situation in the nation of Judah, and they are panicky. And the reason they are panicky is because the prophets have been telling them that they cannot continue to go after false gods, that they have forgotten the God who is the God who has redeemed them and made a covenant and given them prosperity, but they have ignored his truth. They won't listen to his prophets. And this has been going on for hundreds of years. And so now they're afraid because, you see, God uses nations. God will use, um, God will use reprobate nations to judge God's, to God, to judge God's people. Israel and Judah were God's people. But when they would get out of line, God will use others. This is the whole message of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, Lord, listen, we, we, there's, there's no justice in our land. We're just, uh, why, why are you letting all this anarchy and chaos go on in our nation? Why are you not doing anything? He's just crying out to God, God, why aren't you doing anything? And then God tells him what he's going to do, and he says, you can't do that. <laughs> oh, no, no, hey, Lord, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. You can't send that nation into judgment. Do you know, you know about those guys, Lord? He'll, he, will send, he will send the evil nations in to judge the nation that belongs to the Lord. Okay, all right. That's the context of Isaiah 30. So in Isaiah 30, these guys are scared to death of a nation called Assyria. And if you're ever studying about Assyria you'd be scared to death. What they love to do is come in and conquer and take the leadership and cut off their heads. And then what they would do in front of the city gates, they'd make a pyramid out of their heads and they'd leave it there. They'd leave it there. The gates were where everything took place. It was the commerce, it was the banking, it was the Starbucks, it was everything. So every time you walk in and out of the gate, you see this pyramid of heads of the leaders. These guys played hardball. You didn't want to mess around with the Assyrians. So in Isaiah 30, what they're doing is the leadership of Judah is running down to Egypt to try to make an alliance with the king of Egypt because they figure if they can make an alliance with the king of Egypt, because they're really in bad, they're, they're, they, they, can't, they can't handle what's coming and they're panicky. So they go to the king of Egypt because if he'll help them out, maybe they got a shot. Now watch this. Lord of the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, watch this, but not mine, to make an alliance, but not of my spirit. What was this guy saying about evangelicals? He thinks they're forgetting everything believe in order to make an alliance. Who proceed down to Egypt... Oh, they make an alliance, but not in my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. You're already in sin, now you're going further into sin. Who proceed down to Egypt, watch this, without consulting me. To take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Watch this. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. Now see, you got to take these principles and you got to apply them to our times. And you got to think this stuff through. 
Go down to verse 15. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said. He knows their, he knows their situation. He knows their danger. He knows they're vulnerable. He knows they're panicky. Notice what he says. And this is not what they want to hear. But here's what the Lord God says. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. That's interesting. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your, is your strength. In other words, repentance. Repentance, uh, when, to me, repentance is a U-turn. It means to be going in one direction and by a change of the mind, by the change of the will, you're going in one direction, and by a change of mind, you turn and go in the other direction. It's a U-turn. Instead of going to Egypt, you need to make a U-turn and return to me. To me. They'd forgotten the Lord. They're looking to some human instrument to deliver them. Some flawed human instrument. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In rest. Not in frantic action, not in panic, not running around trying to manipulate this or do this. Hey, man, chill out. Eat a cheeseburger, man. <laughs> Drink some coffee. Caffeinated. Read your Bible. Early in the morning. In repentance and rescue, and rescue will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Well, I mean, but we've got to go out and do something. Well, well hold on. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. And quietness and trust is your strength. Uh, I don't want to go there, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, but there was another situation where there was an army of about a million camped in Getty, just really an overnight march up to Jerusalem, and I'm trying to remember the king, Jehoshaphat, that's who it was, thanks. And, I mean, they're defenseless against these guys. And they gather all the people, and the little kids are standing around, and he calls out to the Lord. And, he, and, he, and basically, he says, Lord, we are powerless to stop them. There is nothing we can do. But our eyes are on you. Well, there you go. <laughs> and then the Lord said, hey, listen, don't worry about it. This isn't your battle. This is mine. I'm going to handle this. And he did. So, um, I'm taking too much time on this. But, but maybe I'm not, because is this not a dilemma that we're living with? My gosh, we might suffer. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, this thing's turning quick. Yeah, it is. We've got to do something. Yeah, we do. Now, we live in a country where we can vote. Great. I mean, I voted. I voted uh, six times yesterday. 
run around to different precincts. <laughs> a little humor there, a little voting humor. I voted, I imagine you voted too. Okay, so I voted, I did what I could do. Now I'm leaving it to the Lord, because it's in His hands. It wasn't Super Tuesday, it was Sovereign Tuesday. He determined 10,000 years ago what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, a guy, uh, uh, there's a, a, a scholar named H.A. Leupold. I've got his commentary, and uh, years ago I woke up in the morning, I was in a bit of a crisis that wasn't going away, and I woke up, I woke up, and my first conscious thought was Isaiah 30. I didn't hear a voice, nothing. I just woke up, and I thought, Isaiah 30. And I thought, what's in Isaiah 30? I couldn't remember. So I got up, and I went, and I read the whole chapter, and I went, huh, because it fit my situation. And I got a bunch of commentaries in Isaiah, and I'm sitting there in my study, and I'm looking, and I thought, there's old loophole. I wonder what he's got to say on this. So I pulled him down. And basically, he said, there are times when God, God's people are hemmed in on all sides, and they're in dire straits, and there is absolutely no way of escape, and they tend to panic because they see no possible deliverance. And he says, when that happens... According to this verse, in repentance and rest, you will be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength. He said, I see three principles in this passage for God's people. Here's number one. Wait calmly. Wait calmly. <laughs> I love that. Wait, wait, wait calmly. Here's number two. Remain quiet. And I think he's talking about quietness of heart. Be still and what? Know that I am God. Do you know that? Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? Do you believe it? That he is the God who orchestrates all of these events. Third principle out of this passage, according to Leupold, maintain confidence in the living God. My times are in your hand. Psalm 31, Psalm 138. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me and my family and my kids and my grandkids. So do what you can legitimately do. But don't freak. Don't panic. The other thing, I almost forgot, and I'm glad I didn't. In his section on this passage of Scripture, Leupold, he had a phrase, and the phrase was, not alliance, but reliance. I love that. We've got Christian people in such a panic about their future. They're just like Judah in Isaiah 30. Now, I'm thinking how much more I want to say on this. Yeah. Well, I might have said this last week, but uh, 
I, I think there's, I, I, and I'm almost sure I said it. I, I take you back to Psalm 15. There's a principle in there that when it comes to, it says in Psalm 15 that a person who walks with God, a person of integrity, they, they loathe a reprobate or they despise a reprobate, but they honor those who fear the Lord. Uh, in other words, we're grateful to have a, a vote in this country. And historically, I mean, I think biblical people vote for those who are as close to biblical values as you can get. And sometimes there's not a lot to choose from. But uh, uh, I, I think there's a principle there. You, 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 you vote responsibly from Scripture, not out of panic, and then... And then you, Isaiah 30. And you wait calmly for God to work. Because you don't know what he's going to do. Well, I know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Aubrey McClendon got indicted yesterday. Head guy of Chesapeake. Natural gas. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions. Rode that fracking boom, man. Got indicted. I got a little tweet from Wall Street Journal on my phone. Indicted. I got one this morning. He was killed this morning in his car. You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. So we wait calmly. We remain quiet. We maintain confidence. But if we've drifted from the Lord, we get back. We get back to him. He's our savior. He's our deliverer. He's our rock. He's our sovereign defender. He's our sovereign. He's our sovereign. Okay. So when the dilemmas come, we trust in him. Uh, there are two dangers in verses 16 to 17. I've got to make some tracks through this passage. Or we'll be in this Bible study to 2024. And uh, can't do that. So two dilemmas in verse 15. Now there are two dangers. And this, this verse is really wild because when you first read it, it, it kind of it throws you. It doesn't... But what? what? What's he saying here? This is a little bit unusual. But... Um, we get back to, to the passage. In uh, verses 16 and 17, you've got the two dangers now. Do not be excessively righteous and not, do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? There's some people, this is their life verse. They love this verse or how they misunderstand it. Because in other words, you know, yeah, don't get too godly and don't get too wicked, but you know, get your feet in both camps and enjoy life. That's not what it's saying. That's not even close to what it's saying. Um, here's what it is saying. Uh, it is saying, really, when it's talking about do not be excessively righteous, 
Yeah, here we go. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Uh, oftentimes in the scripture, there'll be a principle and there's, and there's, let's take ambition. There is a authentic ambition or a godly ambition and there is a counterfeit ambition. Um, whatever we do, we make it our ambition to please the Lord, Paul says, I think in Colossians. That's a godly ambition. I want to please the Lord. Doesn't get any better than that. That's the best kind of ambition. But in James, he talks about the wisdom that comes down from above is earthly and natural and demonic and full of selfish ambition. See, that's the counterfeit. That's the kind you don't want. So there are two kinds. It's like mushrooms. You go out and pick mushrooms, you better know what you're doing. Because if you, got the, if you don't know what you're doing with mushrooms, you can die a painful death. So there's the right kind of mushroom, and there's a the kind of mushroom you want to avoid. Same thing is true when it gets to don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Remember, what are the two concepts? Righteousness and wisdom. Okay. Note this. Uh, Dr. Ron Allen, in his commentary, says, the Hebrew verb to be wise may be rendered think yourself wise. And to be overly righteous would mean righteous in your own eyes is Proverbs 3.7. Don't be righteous in your own eyes. What this is a warning about is a warning about self-righteousness. And it happens. Jesus told the story of the two men who were praying in the temple. And one man prayed and said, oh Lord, and he, be, he said, oh Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's self-righteousness. And then another guy was there and he said, oh Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. There you go. That's the real deal. I know what I deserve. I'm asking for grace and mercy and forgiveness and your loving kindness. That's the real deal. Um, I, I was raised in a denomination, I was raised in a church where, uh, they, I mean, I'm grateful for my heritage and I was taught the scriptures, but it wasn't much fun because you couldn't do anything. In our church, I mean, these were godly, righteous people. Therefore, they did not dance. They did not drink alcohol. Except when NyQuil came out. <laughs> They'd throw that back a couple bottles a night. <coughs> I better get some more of that NyQuil there. Uh, <laughs> didn't dance, didn't drink, didn't smoke. I heard some of those people use the N-word in talking about black people. Never thought a thing about it. See, they had their list of sins and others, they just sloughed over. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's a false righteousness. That's a legalistic righteousness. I hate people like that. And every time I look in the mirror, I see one of them. Don't you? Yeah.
So how do you avoid the extremes? Well, let's look at the text. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise or, you know, think you're much wiser. You're, you're superior to other people that you have all the insight. They don't. Uh, why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, listen, there's an appointed time for a man to die. What he's talking, and he knows that, what he's talking about here is the normal span of life. As uh, Psalm 90 would talk about, there's a normal life expectancy. As for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or if due to strength, 80 years. Now, God knows each man's time. But you see, you would expect to live that long, but we have all seen people that have done some very, very foolish, foolish things and gotten into wickedness, and it's killed them. Why would you do that? So what's the answer? How do you, how do you handle this? How do, you, how do you find a balance here? Look at verse 18. It is because, you see, in verse 18, here is the one solution to counter the two dangers. Let me say that again. In verse 18, there is a solution, one solution to counter the two dangers. And the solution is, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Did you catch that? In other words, what you want is, you, you want to be righteous, but you want the right kind. You want wisdom, but you want the, white, the right kind. You don't want to be wise in your own eyes. You want the wisdom that comes from the Father. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. James 1. Who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. If you ask him, you see? So, so, so what's the solution? The solution to finding the balance to get the right wisdom and the right kind of righteousness is to fear the Lord. There's your balance. Uh, Ray Ortland had a great article on the fear of the Lord. I want to read a couple paragraphs to you. He says this so well. He quotes Proverbs 9.10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, track his thinking here, please. If Proverbs 9.10 is so, and it is, then the fear of the Lord is never to be feared. Think about that. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, why would you ever fear that? That's the key to life. Now watch this. This fear is not a barrier to growth, but a breakthrough to growth and eternal fulfillment. But the word fear needs clarification, doesn't it? After all, doesn't the Bible say that perfect love casts out all fear? 1 John 4.18. Yes, it does. So then there must be two kinds of fear. One kind of fear is the fear that shrinks from the Lord in dread, that cowers from him and turns away from him in terror as if he were our problem. That kind of fear is pagan, not Christian. It has nothing to do with glorifying and enjoying God. It is, a, it is suspicion and resentment towards God. The gospel does not create this fear in our hearts. The gospel shows us the glory of God's grace in Christ and lifts us up assured and fearless to face life boldly as men and women of eternal destiny. If you are not in Christ, you fear the Lord in all the wrong ways, and you don't fear him enough. The Bible tells you that you are facing a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, Hebrews 10, 27. If you are not in Christ, you are God's adversary, headed towards judgment, and you fully deserve it. 
but he is freely offering you Christ as your shelter. That's the gospel. You need shelter for many reasons, and here's just one reason. Without Christ, you are all that you have. And then he quotes Arthur Allen Leff of Yale Law School, a brilliant unbeliever who put it this way. It looks as if we are all we have. This would fit Ecclesiastes under the sun. It looks as if we are all we have. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extraordinary, unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. One brother murdered another. Neither reason nor love nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. End of quote. If you are not in Christ, you are all you have. There is something to fear. But Christ is a shelter for people who are in deeper trouble than they even know. So turn to him and turn to him now. Here is the other kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a new attitude of openness to God created by his love. If you are in Christ, his perfect love is casting out your fear of judgment. The Bible says fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loves us. 1 John 4, 18 through 19. The punishment fell on our substitute at the cross. We have received him with the empty hands of faith. We are under God's love now. The gospel frees us from the fear that God will, in the end, condemn us anyway. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. There you go. The fear of the Lord is the greatest thing in the world. You're in his family. You've been adopted into the family legally. Fourteen times the book of uh, Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord. But I have to keep moving here. So you got, so far, we've had two dilemmas. We've had two dangers. We've got one solution, which is the fear of the Lord. And now he's going to turn to wisdom in verse 19. Now watch this. We, we, got a, uh, we got a switch back here to wisdom. Here we go. Wisdom strengthens a man... Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. That's quite a statement. This is talking about the wisdom of God. This is talking about a man, kind of an obscure man in a city. He's not a ruler. There are obviously ten rulers. He's just an average guy, but he's a guy who knows the Lord. He's a guy who fears the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. That kind of wisdom strengthens a wise man more than two rulers who are in a city. A great definition of God's wisdom is in Job 28. You take a left turn. Job's suffering. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, he's suffering, and he was a righteous guy. So Job 28, verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Watch this. Speaking of the wisdom of God, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. 
Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. Watch this. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. Pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does this wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon, destruction and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. Now watch this, 23. God understands its way and he knows its place and he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he sought and declared it, he established it and also searched it out. And to a man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to, to depart from evil is understanding. That's powerful. I have guys say to me often, you know, Steve, I, I know I need to be a spiritual leader. My family and my wife really wants me. She keeps telling me she wants me to be a spiritual leader, but I'm not sure what that means. You know, my, I didn't, my dad wasn't a Christian. I, I mean, I don't even know what that's about. I, I just know my wife goes to a lot of Bible studies, and she knows more of the Bible than I do. Okay, well, that's fine. But see, I don't, but see, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure how to be a spiritual leader. I'm going to tell you something. If you've got nothing else than Job 28, you can be a spiritual leader. You see that last verse? And to a man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now watch this. In my opinion, spiritual leadership, leading your family in the things of God, is basically doing the next right thing. Not doing the next thing. It's doing the next right thing. Not doing the next evil thing. It's doing the next right thing. So what's the next right thing? I don't know. So when you get home, what are you going to face? I don't know. But maybe there's a little bit of crisis. Maybe, have you ever walked in and you can just, before your wife ever says a word, you can read her face? And something's really wrong? Okay, now here's an opportunity to do the next right thing. And you just kind of breathe, Lord, help me here. And maybe all she needs is to tell you something, and then, I don't know, maybe just go put your arm around her. I don't know. But you don't do the next wrong thing, you do the next right thing. You depart from evil. When you're doing your taxes and you're going through all that, you do the next right thing. Oh, I got to pull this together and pull this together. And is that a deduction? Well, I'm not sure. Well, then ask your CPA. I don't know. Is, is, that, is that a genuine deduction? And, you know, you need an honest CPA. And if he says yes, you're good. If he says no, then don't do it. Do the next right thing. Does this make sense? That's valuable. Isn't that valuable? Because the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. 
If you got a guy and he's saying, Lord, I just, I just need wisdom. He'll give you wisdom. And see, let's go back to Isaiah 30. I'm reading all this stuff like you're reading. And so there's a bunch of rich guys that are real concerned about, you know, whether this thing is going presidentially and they're getting together and they're starting this movement and they're going to put their monies into a pack and they're going to do this. And just an average Joe who follows Christ and fears the Lord has more wisdom than 10 of those guys or a million of those guys. Don't you love that? Because it comes from Jesus. Who's orchestrating the whole thing anyway for his glory and for the good of his people. I got to keep moving. Now, he's going to switch back to the righteous. Okay? We're, gonna, we're about done here. He's going to switch back to the righteous. Two main ideas, righteousness and wisdom. Now, in uh, verses 20 to 22, here's his point. There's a flaw in the righteous. A flaw in the righteous. Let me get back to Ecclesiastes. And, and what is the flaw? The flaw is sin. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So see, once again, as we look at what's going on, you want to listen carefully, as closely as you can, and... So someone jokingly asked me earlier, is this candidate a Christian? Well, all I know is he said he had no reason to ask for forgiveness. Well, that contradicts this. It contradicts Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, even after we come to know Christ and we're born again, we still sin. 1 John 3, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the verse before and the verse after says, To Christians, if you say that you have no sin, you make him a liar. Now, I haven't sinned in about 12 years. <laughs> and I am very proud of that. <laughs> so I just screwed up. The story, the lady went up to C.H. Spurgeon, and she was dead serious. She believed in sinless perfectionism. And she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll have you know I haven't sinned in 12 years. She was glowing. He said, oh, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> she had no clue. <laughs> We're still sinners, guys. And, and you know what? Oftentimes... It's our mouth. Oftentimes it's our tongue. Look at 21. Do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing. You hear someone bad-mouthing you? You hear somebody talking about you behind your back? You hear, don't, don't get all up. Don't get all riled. Don't get... Well, why not? Why, why not? Well, look at the next verse. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Absolutely. Sure I have. You bet I have. 
Now he's going back to wisdom in 23. You see the switchbacks? And now he's going to tell us about some uh, traps to wisdom. And these, these can really be misunderstood, okay? We're going to deal with them quickly. The traps to wisdom. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. For what has been is remote and exceeding mysterious, or exceedingly deep, what has occurred. You see? Nothing you can do about the past. Who can discover it? There are certain things in your past you still haven't figured out what God was up to, but God knows it's very, very deep. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are some things you'll never get on this earth. Okay. 25. I directed my mind, now watch how intense this guy is. I directed my mind to know and to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Now, now, watch what he says. And I discovered more bitter than death. What's more bitter than death? The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. Hmm. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. And he's not done yet. 27. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Watch this verse. This is a wild verse. Which I am still seeking, verse 28, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. You know what he's saying? Out of a thousand, I found one wise man, but I, out of a thousand, I've not found one wise woman. Now, you might want to go home tonight and share that with your wife. <laughs> and then again, maybe you don't want to. But if you do, explain it to her this way. I love what uh, Derek Kidner said. This guy's a great Old Testament scholar. On that verse, I love what he says. Uh, so our author, Solomon, startles us with his bitter verdict that he has only found one man in a thousand who was not a disappointment, but not a single woman. How are we to take this? For a start, we should notice that he is not dogmatizing, but reporting. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, well, in my Bible, there's a margin note that says 1 Kings 11.3, and 1 Kings 11.3 said that Solomon personally had 700 wives and how many concubines? 300. And God told him, don't you do that. Don't you take multiple wives because they take multiple wives from other countries to establish alliances with kings. Because that was the way of getting out of war and difficulty and hardship. But God said, don't do it because they have other gods and they will turn your heart from me, which is exactly what happened. And he did it a thousand times. He's not saying women don't have wisdom. My gosh. It, it, read 9.9 of Ecclesiastes. He said, you got a good wife. You're blessed by God. This is the guy who wrote Proverbs 31. 31 is about the virtuous, godly, wise woman. An excellent wife, who can find? Well, obviously not Solomon. Why? Because he didn't take the wisdom of the Scriptures and the warnings of God and apply them to his own life. 700 wives, 300 concubines. The concubine and the wives... Uh, see, there, uh, concubines are all about sex. And see, here's a principle here in our day and age. 
The only sexual relationship, the only sexual relationship that God endorses and blesses is between a man and woman who are married. Anything else is sin. That doesn't fly in this culture. But it's true. And here's what happens. When you get into a relationship and you start getting physically involved and you start sleeping with somebody, you're asking for it. You're asking for trouble. You're, you're, just, you're, you're just violating the scriptures. And especially if they don't know the Lord. If they know the Lord, this is a myth. This is a train wreck. How do you unscramble an egg? He did this a thousand times. He's not saying there aren't women with godly wisdom. There are women with godly wisdom. They're all through the Bible. But see, he rejected the wisdom in his own life. Which is why he ends with 29. Uh, 29 to me, verse 29, is the need for a Savior. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright. And that's what he did in the garden. They were without sin in the garden. But then they chose against God. But now they have sought out many devices. Uh, that's the same principle that we are all tainted with sin. There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Did he know about a Redeemer? Uh, he knew about a Redeemer, just like Job. They're Old Testament. Well, Job said in Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives. What he's saying here is that God made, upright, made men upright, but we've all fallen into sin through many devices. So what do you need? You need a Savior. Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And let me close with uh, Romans 5, because it closes with the righteousness of God, which is what we all desperately need and what we don't have in and of ourselves. Romans 5, 19 says this. And, and this is really explaining that last verse of Ecclesiastes 7. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, capital one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That, so that as sin reigned in death, watch this, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the gospel. There's the solution to life. Let's pray. So, Father, we're walking through life. We're trying to figure this out. We're looking at what's going on around us. We're troubled. We're anxious. We're concerned. We see the world falling apart. And then we look even in our own hearts, and we keep putting our foot in our mouths, and we say things, and we do things we shouldn't be doing, even though we know you. And we're just a mess. So we need a Savior. And we thank you that our Savior is Jesus. You came to seek and to save that which was lost and that was us. We thank you for the eternal life that you give us. And we thank you that as we walk through life, that as we're confused and puzzled, that as we open our scriptures, you shed light on our path. Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path.
So whatever it is we're facing, light our path with your truth. And Lord, as we go home tonight, by your grace, grace and mercy, help us to do the next right thing and honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.